Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Anybody good at predicting the future? Joanne, just one. She knew that question was coming. She's sharp. That was amazing. She had her hand up before I even asked. That's amazing. Um, There are people in this world who are called futurists, and it's not because they're a psychic or something like that or a prophetic gift, but they like to think about the way culture is going, the way society is heading, and anticipate what might that mean for our world. This has been going on for ages and ages, and I just want to draw attention to something. In the uh, 90s and in the 80s, there was a group of researchers, I want to show you a cover of a book, John Naisbitt and Patricia Aberdeen. First wrote a book called Megatrends. Anybody heard of Megatrends? Remember that one? It was followed up by Megatrends 2000. Everybody remember anticipating 2000, Y2K, and all of that. So back in the 90s, they were trying to forecast what might the future look like. And so they released this second book, Megatrends 2000, in which they gave 10 predictions for through the 90s heading into a new millennium. And they were right on several things. They predicted a growing global lifestyle, a rise of women in leadership, the triumph of the individual, which I think is quite interesting. But through their writing, they anticipated one main thing, that in the 21st century in which we now live, there would be a dominant question for humanity. And the question is this, what does it mean to be human? Maybe more than ever before in all of human history, that question matters a lot. I mean, think about it. On one side, we have growing thoughts around the idea of evolution, which sort of brings humanity and the animal world a bit closer together, right? So what does it mean to be human in light of that? And then on the technological side of the world, we have advancements with AI, and robots are now smarter than us and have thoughts and feelings and opinions of their own, and so where do we draw the line of humanity there, right? And so humans, whether we're consciously asking this out loud a lot or not, are actually on the inside of us, and as a race, as a species, we're asking this question, what does it mean to be human? On May 28th last year, 2021, some of you may remember some news that broke. A number came into our world, which for me, and I think for many other people, will continue to remember what that number meant. The number was 215 in Kamloops. Unmarked graves, 215 indigenous children. Remember, we would see that number posted in various places as we as a nation became more and more aware of an awful, significant part of our history, 215. Within days, there was another number that came out of Manitoba, 104. Several weeks later, in Saskatchewan, 751. 
And the numbers over the coming months continued to tally. Um, at present, it seems that the cumulative total is around 2,300. And for some of us, numbers just become numbers. And I remember, I was really proud of how our church family responded to these discoveries and the news. There was a sense of sadness and shock and grief. We prayed together often for the indigenous communities locally and across Canada. And I remember at one point in our journey, as we were sort of attaching ourselves or being aware of numbers, 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 I, I thought we could be headed in a direction where some of us, we just remember the number and we forget that there's souls. And these are people we're talking about, not just numbers. And so back last June, I introduced another number that I, I wanted us as a church family to remember and to embrace. And that number is 127. Every time we were hearing news of another number, 215, 751, 104, whatever it may be, 2,300, I wanted us to remember 127. 127. And I hope that as a church family, we'll continue to embrace this number and the meaning that lives within 127. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you have an app, that works too. Turn with me to Genesis, chapter 1, verse, anybody want to guess? 27, you got it. Genesis 1, 27. As you go to verse 27, I want you actually to back up with me to verse 26. We're going to read 26 into 28. And the most important reality for us lives in verse 27, of course. As we approach this, I want to just give you a few thoughts quickly about the book of Genesis and where we find ourselves right now. If you're familiar with the Bible, the, the, the first book of the Bible is Genesis. The first part of Genesis is all about this beautiful, poetic creation story. And it's told in a way where we hear that God is creatively creating in this six-day period of time followed by a seventh day of rest, a Sabbath. Now, it's important for us to just know this. Maybe you've not noticed this before, but there's some important repetition that occurs in these six days. It, it sort of, if you're reading through, you can think, well, didn't we just hear that? Didn't that happen earlier? Well, yes, it did. And it's because in the Jewish way of writing and storytelling and poetry, um, they like echoing things in different ways. So if you pay attention to it, the first three days are days where God is forming things. The second three days of creation is where God is now filling those things in which he has formed. We find ourselves towards the end of that as we come to these verses. The other thing I want you to have in mind, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. If you've done a little history research, you may have come across this. It happened quite often in ancient history. Maybe in some places of the world it may still happen today. But when an emperor or a king in the ancient Near East would take new territory, whether by conquest or discovery, they would often put a statue of themselves in that new territory. Because the king could not physically be in all of his territory at all the time, but if he had a statue there, it was a representation of him, of his rule, of his reign, and what his kingdom meant. 
It was also a reflection of him to those who lived in the area. So when new territories were taken, the king would put a statue, an image of himself in that place to reflect and represent himself. Does that make sense? I think some of you are like, oh, I think I know where this is going. Let's see it together. Chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us. Can you say, Let us? It's interesting because in the first days of creation, he kept saying, Let there. Let there be light. Let there be day and night. And let there, let there, let there. And so God, with his words, creates. And now he says, Not let there, let us. The community of God is now up to something. Let us make people in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the rivers, I think, too, and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along on the ground. Verse 27, so God created people. This is 127. God created people in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Isn't that interesting how even the Genesis account of origins echoes some of the realities that were going on in the ancient Near East. It's like, oh, you think you're a pretty fancy king because you can take new territory and put your image there? Well, check out what the originator of all things, the creator of all things did. He created this and then he put his image in the new territory, to represent and to reflect. And then he blessed and gave him a commission to multiply and fill the earth with his blessing and his presence. You and I live in this world as a representation to the rest of the world, to the rest of creation of our creator. You and I live in this world as a representation and a reflection to the world and creation around us of our creator. There's something beautiful about God's language here, about him putting image bearers, people with his likeness. I mean, I suppose God had every opportunity to create humans in a way where we would not be image bearers, where we would not bear his likeness, where we'd be utterly and absolutely very distinct from him. And in no way are we divine like him, but in his goodness and generosity of heart, he wanted to create us like him. There is something about you and me and all the people of the earth that reminds God of himself when he sees us. I think that's wild. People matter. I remember when I was a young adult, um, can't really explain it, but one night I had a dream about uh, having a baby. I wasn't dating anybody, wasn't married. I just, all of a sudden in this dream, I have a baby. It was a little baby girl. And uh, I held the baby up in the light, you know, up, up like this to look at it and smile at her. And you know how dreams work. Somehow, like there was really bright, beautiful light. It was probably the sun kind of behind her. And so she was sort of lit up and shiny and fuzzy head and all that kind of stuff. And when I looked into the face of this little baby in my dream, there was a moment where I was like, oh, I, could, I could see my likeness in her. 
And I woke up that morning, and it, was, it had moved me. It was such a special moment for me. And then, of course, life progresses, and by God's blessing, I'm married and have four children and have experienced that moment four times over. And maybe many of you have, too, with your own children or even in your grandchildren, where you're like, wow, they, they carry this resemblance to our family. It's amazing. There's something that makes you feel that much more connected. Isn't it wonderful that when God created people, he wasn't obsessing with making sure that we all figured out how much better than us he was by making us so different. But he made us in his likeness as a representation and as a reflection so that when he sees you and I, when he sees the people of this world, there's something about people that reminds him of himself. So in what, some of you might ask, what, in what ways might we actually reflect God? How does that work? Theologian, scholar, and author Daryl Johnson did some writing on Genesis chapter one, and he proposes in the text that we see seven ways already that humanity gets to reflect God. Again, we're not divine, we're not divine, but there's unique ways that we get to reflect God's character in our world. So I wanna show these to you right now. Here's the seven things, I'm gonna just mention them quickly. We have a capacity to create. We have a capacity to categorize things. Some of us like doing that more than others. We have a capacity to conceptualize things, come up with ideas about things. We have, an, we have a capacity to communicate. We have capacity to care. We have capacity to discern, and we have capacity to decide. Some might point out, well, there's, you know, animals in certain ways can do some of this. Absolutely, they can. But humanity, in humanity, you know, all of these seven things are expressed with the greatest uniqueness and clarity. I want you to go with me to flip over to Psalm chapter 115. Psalm chapter 115. <clears throat> I, I just want to look at a few passages today and then set us up for a few simple thoughts that reinforce something that matters so much to this church, the fact that we value people. Psalm 115, we're going to read the first few verses. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, beginning in verse 1, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and your faithfulness. Now that's interesting. Those are image bearers that are writing this. If we're created in God's likeness and his representation, you can see how there's a capacity, and especially because of sin, for us to exploit our abilities and to make a name for ourselves and not for God for the statue or the image we are in God's world to try to take over and make it all about us and not about him. But here the psalmist is saying, no, 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 we recognize our place in this world. Not to us, but to you and your name be the glory. Verse two says this, why did the nations say, where is their God? Well, let's think about that for a moment. Why might the nations around Israel say, where is their God? Because all of the other pagan nations in the ancient Near East that surrounded Israel had what? Idols, they could see their gods, right? And they're like, what's with Israel? I mean, it seems that they have a temple. It seems that they have a priest. They don't have a God, though, because we don't see an idol anywhere. Why do the nations say, where is their God? So the answer comes from the psalmist here, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And depending on your view about God, that can be a very wonderful line or a very threatening line. I want to let you know it's good news that God does whatever pleases him. 
If that's scary to you, I invite you to journey into the goodness of God. He is trustworthy and he is faithful. If he holds all power over all things and is benevolent and good, this is good news for us. He does whatever pleases him. Listen to this. There's a contrast going on between our God and then what Israel was seeing in the nations of the world that surrounded them. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of people. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Isn't this interesting? We see a lot of uh, the human senses in this language, don't we? Interestingly, in ancient Jewish history, they believed humans had seven senses, not just the five that we know of, but in addition to the five, uh, number six would be mobility, the ability to move your feet, your hands, and seven would be speech. They felt that the ability to talk was the seventh sense. Verse eight says this, those who make the idols will be like them. Isn't that an interesting irony in contrast to the God who makes image bearers like him? And so will those who put their trust in them. <clears throat> if you want to know what somebody worships or who somebody worships, we really have the opportunity to figure it out by just looking at their lives. Our lives become more and more like what or whom we worship. What an opportunity for us as image bearers then to continually grow in our reflection of who God is and what he is like in our world. None of us have a perfection in our ability to do that, but we have a great opportunity. There's something else that was going on in the ancient world in Israel and around <clears throat> Israel at that time. There was this common understanding that how you treated the image of a God was how you were treating that God. So if you had an idol in your community and uh, people were upset at that community or attacked that community and they knocked over the idol and chopped off its hands and head, it was a major statement and a major offense because what you were doing to their idol, you were actually doing to their God, right? If you had a little statue in your home that you were, you know, represented your God in your pagan Babylonian world or whatever it might be, if you were pretty casual with it and you sort of accidentally bumped it, if you maybe didn't keep it in a careful place or a safe location and it was bumped and knocked over, it was as if you didn't care for your God. How you treat the image of the God reflects how you treat the God. I think that's true in the ancient Jewish world and for us today. How you and I treat God's image is a significant part of how we treat God. Maybe I could say it this way. How you and I treat people is a significant part of how we worship God. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, Genesis 1, Psalm 115, we could draw from a whole bunch of other passages as well. What does this all mean? Two things, very simple, very clear. Want it to be alive in your heart. Number one, we value people. I had the privilege of serving in this church as an associate pastor in 2008 for several years, and then now honored years later to return in 2020 with our family to serve as leaders of this church. One thing I find 
amazing about you, about the people of this church family, is the way that you love people. Well done. Family, could we continue to uphold this? Could we continue to embrace this? Could we continue to open our hearts and stretch our ability in exciting ways to embrace and value people? Number one, we value people. Number two, it means we treat people differently than others do. I mean, uh, I see stuff on social media, you, you know, funny videos that get sent. And I'm a sucker for videos where, like, somebody gets proper payback. Do you like payback videos? I have none to show you today. You can find them on your own time. But it's kind of fun, right? You know, and there's like, ah, oh, you deserve that. <clears throat> like, it makes sense to my human way of seeing things justly. And sure, maybe it's okay for a chuckle here or there. But in God's world, in his church family, obsessing about vengeance goes against this. Why? Because we value people. And we treat people differently than others do. You see the world around us, your work environment, your school environment, your neighborhood, wherever you find yourselves... They may treat people in a particular way, and it may even make sense to our human way of approaching things, right? That doesn't mean it's right, because you and I are distinct. We value people, 127, and we treat people differently than others do. Just because the rest of the world does it a particular way doesn't mean that we get caught up in that way of doing things. Two things we must remember, and this can be hard for us at times, but it's so important. Number one. Those whose society has power over are also image bearers. I've, I've heard it said, maybe you have too, that if you want to see what the true nature of somebody's like, give them power over someone and then see how they handle that. Parenting's a real challenge, amen? I mean, it's a great blessing and a joy and an all of that, but it's a challenge. And one of the challenges is you have power and authority over people. Ugh. You ever wanted that? Now you got it. You mishandle it, it gets harder. You handle it well, it can still be hard, <laughs> right? Those who society has power over, they're image bearers. We see great clues of this in the New Testament. Um, I just... The way the Apostle Paul writes, he's one of the first church leaders and he writes a scad of letters to all kinds of new communities of faith that are being formed around ancient Turkey and Israel and all of that. And he's, he's helping the church realize this is what it looks like for us to love one another and treat one another in a way that honors Jesus, the one who's caused this all to be. And when Paul writes, I want you to pay attention to this. The next time you're reading some of his letters... A lot of times he'll unpack big theological ideas or he'll have to defend uh, a particular point of view or persuade his audience against something that they've found themselves dabbling in. And then he usually, towards the end, he starts writing direct notes to particular groups of people in the church to make sure they have some important information for whatever's real in their world, right? You've maybe noticed that. In many of Paul's letters, who does Paul address first? Slaves. Slaves. In the Roman world of Paul's day, slaves were nobodies. They weren't even second-class citizens. They were nearly subhuman. 
They were probably closer to animal than human, according to Rome. And so Paul, when he writes, who does he put first in line often? Slaves, I have a note for you. I mean, if you're in that church as a slave, you got to be feeling real great that Sunday when his letter is being read. Are you kidding me? He's addressing us. Rome doesn't care about us. They'll bark orders here and there in the household at us, and we're just expected to do and deliver no matter what. But in the church, we seem to matter. Why? 127. We value people. We treat them differently than the world. It doesn't matter if Rome belittles them. We see that you're a human. I'll write a note to the slaves. Bravo for being human. Welcome to our family. Look what Jesus has done. You thought you didn't matter, but according to Jesus, you do. Who else does Paul often write to? It seems that he's writing notes to families, right? He writes to wives often. And in our era, a lot of, Paul gets a lot of criticism for some of how he says what he says. And it's really important to understand the context surrounding that, and I won't get into that now. But I want us to just sort of step back and realize again, Paul is writing to wives. Rome didn't do that. They didn't care what wives thought. They didn't matter. They were actually second-class citizens. But Paul is gesturing, no, 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 no. You're in Christ's family. One, two, seven. We value you. You are important. You have a voice. You have a place. You belong. Society felt that they had power over women. They had power over slaves. And so along comes Jesus with a revolution, reminding humanity of one, two, seven. And Paul echoes that and says, I've got a word for you slaves. I've got a word for you wives. You matter here. And so in our world today, you need to think through this week, who do you feel you have power over? The cashier? The person holding up traffic? A neighbor who's a nuisance? A child, a grandchild? Who do you feel you have power over? You need to remember that they're an image bearer too. We treat people differently than the world around us does. Who is culture mocking right now? Who is culture abusing right now? We don't join in that. That's not how we handle it. One, two, seven. We care about those people. They matter. Second thing we need to remember, those who have power over you are image bearers. Like your annoying boss, like politicians, like people you really wish didn't have power over you, difficult family member, whatever it may be. One, two, seven. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is delivering what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of like his manifesto. Here's how it's gonna be from now on as the kingdom of God keeps coming towards earth. And he delivers all these wonderful ideas and he clarifies things about the law and, and purifies it into the most concise, helpful, wonderful way for us to see things. And he drops this little line in chapter 5, verse 41 of the book of Matthew. He says, if somebody demands you to go one mile, what do you do? Go two. That's, Jesus is saying, hey, here's how it's going to be in my kingdom. If somebody expects you to go one mile... Serve them and go to. 
You see, when Jesus dropped that little line, everybody in his audience knew exactly what he, he meant. The Roman Empire, Roman uh, authorities, centurions and leaders in the army, they had authority over all people, right? And they had this thing called Roman commandeering, which meant at any point in time, a Roman soldier or centurion or whatever could commandeer anybody and force them to become a laborer for them for a while. And it may have even been common that they could expect one mile of help from them. And so who might they pick on the most? Well, perhaps the Jewish uh, audience and the new Christian sects in their empire. They might be, you know, I'll, I'll leave those Roman citizens. I won't expect this of them. But those lesser thans, those people who don't quite fit in our world, will pick on them. So the, Rome would pick on Jewish people and Christian people. And they would demand at times. There might be a weary soldier carrying a heavy load, and all of a sudden he comes across a group of people in town, a few Jewish men standing around, or maybe some new Christians, he said, okay, you, I need you to carry this for me, we're going. And they have no option in that moment. You defy the Roman authority there, it's like you're defying the emperor, you're paying with your life if you don't listen. Okay, yep, 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 I thought I had plans for today, but I guess they've changed right now, I'm helping you. So how might the Jewish people or some of those early Christians, how might they have been tempted to serve for their one mile? Think about it for you. How would you have been tempted? There's an oppressor in your world that's expecting this from you. How might you serve? I mean, I would be tempted to grovel. I don't know about you. I might be tempted if I was carrying some of their valuables. Oops, a rock. <laughs> Oops, another rock. I must have clubbed feet, or you know, I, I too lefty. I just keep falling. Sorry about your stuff. Ah, oh, you're worthless. I'll get somebody else. Oh, good. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. That's not how we do it in my world. The kingdom I'm from, we do it differently. You expect a mile from me? Sure, I'll carry that for you, sir. And you walk along, and you look for opportunity. So, um, Mr. Soldier, do you have a family? Yeah, I do. They're back in Italy. My commanding officer decided he thought Judea would be a good area for me to serve for a while. I'm not too pleased to be here. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, do you, you come alone? You have wife, children? You know, my wife, she's back in Italy right now. And we have two young children. Oh, okay. You must miss them. I do. Why would you care like that? Because that Roman soldier... One, two, seven. They're a person. And Jesus is saying, if a Roman authority expects one mile from you, try changing your attitude, serving two, and treating them like a person. There are people in your life who have authority over you. I hope in most cases that's a delight and a joy for you. But in some cases it's a challenge, it's a nuisance, it's a problem. One, two, seven. In the late 1600s, there was a publication uh, that began being penned called The Martyr's Mirror. And uh, it was the Anabaptists, actually, who developed this writing to just honor the story of several martyrs who died for their faith. And uh, I want to show you a picture that was uh, in The Martyr's Mirror in 1685. Let's see that right now. Anybody seen this picture before? I'm looking for Mennonites right now. 
<laughs> Mennonites might have seen a picture like this. You may have received a book at your wedding as a gift with a picture like this in it. This picture is treasured by many Mennonites and some other, uh, others in the Christian world as well. In 1685, an artist sketched this image a fellow named Dirk Willems, Dirk Willems, who lived more than 100 years prior to that in the 1500s. Dirk Willems began having a real and dynamic relationship with Jesus, and it was different than what the Roman Catholic authorities expected of faith. And so he rubbed some people the wrong way, uh, those with power. But he couldn't, you know, he couldn't contain his love and joy for Jesus. And so uh, he would talk to other people about Jesus, which we think is good, but at the time, others didn't like it. They felt threatened by it. He ended up baptizing several people in his home, and he got arrested by Catholic authorities, and he was imprisoned. In prison, he pulled off the classic escape move. Bed sheets and clothing, he tied them together in knots, hung it out a window, climbed out in winter. Now, the prison he was in had a moat around it, but it was winter, so there was ice, so he could cross it. So he got safely onto the ice and began his escape. A prison guard saw him and chased him. The prison guard weighed more than him and fell through the ice. How does Dirk Willems handle that moment? I'm free, praise God, the Lord provided a hole for this prison guard. Dirk William Willems turned around, reached his hand towards the guard, and saved him. Within weeks, Dirk was burned at the stake because he was captured again. And so he goes down as a hero to Mennonites. Many today still have heard of his story. Why? Because of the way he treated people who had power over him. One Two, seven. That's an image bearer going through the ice there. I know I could be free, but that's a person. And that heartbeat matters. Psalm 8, verse 5 suggests to us that all people are crowned with glory and honor. And for some people, it's very, very, very hard to see that. And let's be honest, because of human sin and human choice and decision-making, humanity has distorted itself in a variety of ways. But within every single person, every single heartbeat that beats right now carries a capacity for great reflection of God's image. They were still created in his image. Every person is crowned with glory and honor. What does that actually look like for you and me in the Comox Valley today, for us to actually believe that? What does it look like when you go back to school this week to trust that that's true about the students that are around you or the teachers that you have? What is that like for those of you that are returning to work after all the holidays you've enjoyed this summer, that the people around you are crowned with glory and honor? Your children, your school, what about those who are being bullied? How do we handle that? How do we respond to them? What about neighbors? If they're crowned with glory and honor, how do we handle ourselves? I remember when um, some of our, two of our children were born in the same city. And um, when we were at the hospital for a day or two after one in particular was born, 
Um, we were just getting to know the nurses that were helping. They were just so lovely and so wonderful. And I don't know about you, but if, you're, if you follow Jesus, most of us do here, you ever have those conversations where people, with people and you're like, boy, it's, I, I think they might actually follow Jesus too. I'm just picking up a vibe or something like that. I don't know how I can feel this, but you know, and sometimes you feel that. And I can't remember how it came out. They might have asked what we did and we finally said, okay, we're, at, we're actually pastors, work at a church. Oh, no way, wow. And this nurse said, you know what? I, I follow Jesus too. And she said, the other one over there, she does too. And between the two of us, we pray over every baby born in this city. And I thought, wow, that's bringing the message and ministry of Jesus to everyday life. One, two, seven. What does it look like in your workplace for you to value people? What does it look like at the golf course or where you're playing disc golf? What does it look like when you're stuck in traffic or in a long lineup or an irritating cashier? What does it look like with how we view politicians or people who are succeeding or people who are struggling? I had an interesting uh, day a couple weeks ago. I was in the hospital to visit and um, part of my journey took me to the maternity ward. And I was standing in there hearing a brand newborn baby cry. You know the newborn cry? Like it's new. Wow. I mean, it moved me in that moment. I was taken back to the moments that each of our children were born. And that heartbeat matters, right? That breath, those lungs, one, two, seven. And on the same day, I was in a different room with a man who was dying. Hadn't lived a great life at all. And you have the honor in those moments to tell them some really great news that even in that moment, they're forgivable, they're lovable, they're worthwhile, there's hope. Why? Because one, two, seven. Because their heartbeat matters too. Are you guys okay if we do a story time moment? We'll close with this, okay? Um, I'm going to read from here because they say it better than I could. So, Here's just a, a summary of a, a movie. Some of you may have seen it. Spoiler alert if you're, if you're wanting to watch this movie in 1995 and you didn't. Um, you could leave now and not find out what happens. There's a movie in 1995 called Dead Man Walking. Sister Helen is a nun living and working in the St. Thomas Housing Projects in New Orleans when she received an invitation to be a pen pal with someone on death row. Dead man walking. Anybody remember seeing that? Yeah, some people do. It turns out the condemned man, Matthew Poncelet, along with his friend, came across two beautiful teenagers, Loretta and David, in Lover's Lane, Sugarfield, after a Friday night homecoming game. Loretta was raped. Both David and Loretta were left in the field, shot in the back of the head. Sister Helen initially wonders if Poncelet's claims to innocence might be true. Matthew argues that his partner had actually committed the rape and the murder. She was not, uh, he was not looking for Sister Helen to be his spiritual director initially, but he wants her to work on his behalf to get him off of death row. Sister Helen enters his world. Why? One, two, seven, I think. She enters his world 
to find it's not a pretty one. Matthew is not a lovable character. He's a racist. He uses the N-word. He talks of how well Hitler got the job done. He refers to women as bitches and talks about how he wanted to blow up government buildings. Matthew informs Sister Helen that she missed out by not being married and having sex. He evokes no sympathy whatsoever. Nonetheless, Sister Helen holds on to herself and her convictions. She invites him repeatedly to make himself right with God by confessing what happened. She tries to get him to take responsibility for what he did. Progress is slow, very slow. At the time, that same time, in fact, Sister Helen initiates a relationship with the grieving families. She enters their world of unfathomable loss and pain. The parents of the dead children are outraged and pressure mounts against Sister Helen to back off her involvement with Matthew. They draw a line in the sand. You can't befriend that murderer and expect to be our friend too, says the father of one as he asks Sister Helen to leave his house. If you really care about this family, you'll want to see justice done. Newspapers pick up on Matthew's racist, pro-Nazi views and then mention Sister Helen also. Her colleagues at work also complain that she's neglecting her work at St. Thomas Projects. You care more about him than your classes, one of them says. She hangs between heaven and earth in the raw, brute work of the incarnation. She's hanging between her world, the condemned killer's world, the parents of the murdered teen's world, and the world of her colleagues at work. When the male victim's father asks Sister Helen how she has the faith to do what she does, she replies, it's not faith, it's work. She does not give up. Over time, Matthew begins to let down his defenses. Finally, at 11.38 p.m., only minutes before his execution at midnight, she asks him, Matthew, do you take responsibility for both of their deaths? Crying, he admits his guilt for the first time. A few minutes later, he says, thank you for loving me. I never had anybody really love me before. Sister Helen recalls their walk together toward his execution. That walk was the first time I ever touched him. I looked down, I saw his chains dragging across the gleaming tile floor. His head was shaved and he was dressed in a clean white t-shirt. When they took him into the execution chamber, I leaned over and I kissed his back. Matthew, pray for me, she said. Sister Helen, I will. When he is strapped to the chair to be injected with lethal solution, she tells him to watch her face. And she says, that way, the last thing you will see before you die will be the face of someone who loves you. One, two, seven. I think in that story, I mean, it's a movie. If we're honest, all of us are Matthew, right? Now, I don't think any of us have committed heinous crimes like that. 
But if we take an honest assessment of our own lives, we've all made our own mistakes. There's, there's faults in each of us that make us kind of feel quite unworthy at times, right? So I think it's right for us to actually put ourselves in his shoes for a moment and realize, yeah, all of us are kind of guilty of something and some things in this world and in this life, right? So in the story, we're, we're all Matthew. But here's the reality. In the story, we can all be Sister Helen, too. You'd certainly have people in your world, might be in your family, might be in your neighborhood, might be at work, might be at school, might be in another sector I haven't mentioned. And there's something kind of disfigured in the image of God. But guess what? It's still there. One, two, seven. And you and I, through love and valuing people, could see the work of Jesus unfold. We're going to conclude today by celebrating communion together. If you have this little cup, it was given to you as you came in. If you need to run to the lobby real quick to grab one, you can. If you haven't used one of these type before, there's a little cellophane layer on the top you peel back first, and that reveals a cracker. And then a foil layer underneath it, you peel it back carefully, because there's juice inside. I'm glad that at home right now, you're participating in communion with us too. Maybe you've heard this said before, but it's worth reminding you of. The true value of something is not determined by its price tag, but by what somebody will actually pay for it, right? The true value of something is determined by what someone will pay for it. So my question is for us to consider and remember today is how much did God pay for you? Think of the most difficult person in your world right now. <laughs> I know that makes us uncomfortable. How much did God pay for them? With blood. His life. Wow. I mean, grace is a scandal every time we think about it. Who of us is deserving of that kind of love? That our creator, that God himself would come as close as possible, incarnated as human, so that he could bleed and die for us. Wow. Wow. Scripture says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you just break the little cracker right now? I want you to see. It was whole, and then it became broken. And in reverse irony, it predicts and prophesies that the brokenness in your life and mine can be made whole by Jesus and him alone. Amen? Let's take the bread together. Scripture says that in the same way, in the same night, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new agreement between God and people. It was God's gesture. By the cross, Jesus was saying to people, I'm giving myself to you completely and eternally. And our response in community is to say, I give myself to you. His blood provides life Abundant and everlasting. 
Let's receive the thanksgiving together. Would you join me in standing right now? some of you, there may have been something that spoke to your heart in a particular way, and it would just help you a lot if somebody could pray with you. Maybe it has to do with where your soul is at right now, or something you're searching for. Maybe there's a need in your life. Somehow we touched on it today, or just the Spirit of God is saying, yeah, you know, receive prayer for that. Receive prayer for that. These people would love to pray with you today. would love to pray with you today. As we close today, I'm going to pray for us just as a whole group right now. And um, I think I think we see with even more clarity. I mean, people are created in God's image, and people are worth the very best love. That's God's example, isn't it? But let's be honest. How many of you would say, well, sometimes loving people is very hard? It is. My hands are way So we need God's help to love well, right? Let's pray for that today. Would you hold out your hand? Father, would you give us eyes to see in a better way how you see people? Sometimes we catch glimpses, but we want to see in greater ways. How do you see my neighbors? How do you see my coworkers, classmates, teachers? How do you see others, Father? Would you open our eyes? Sometimes it's so hard to love. It can be quite difficult. We need your strength. We need your grace, we need your anointing, we need your empowerment for this. We acknowledge on our own it's hard. We have very little strength through this sometimes, so we need you to work through us. I just need to say one thing, please keep your eyes closed. There might be somebody here today or online, and as you've heard the message, you're in a situation where there's abuse. And somehow the enemy might take advantage of things that I've said and cause you to think that you need to continue to stay in a position where you will be abused in an ongoing way. That's not true. That's a lie. If there's abuse, if you're unsafe, you need safety. Get out. Get help. Our church will help. Now let's pray together to conclude. Father, we're going into your world on your mission. And we declare our dependence upon you. So Holy Spirit, send us now. Amen. Amen. Please, if you do need prayer for anything of any kind, don't leave today without having somebody pray with you. Grab a friend to pray with at your seat or come right down here and one of these couples would love to pray with you today. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Go enjoy each other outside. We have a day of fall, and then I think summer's coming back for a few more days this week. We look forward to it. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store. 
to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.